Welcome back, everyone. I'm Tony Brown, and you're listening to Firearms Cafe, the show where we discuss the philosophies of responsible firearms ownership, as well as the relevant issues and challenges that we face in the current gun culture. Hey, everybody. What's going on? Today is Monday. It is the 3rd of September, 2018, and it is Labor Day today. So my wife and kiddo are off running around with some of their friends doing some Labor Day shopping and activities, so that leaves me at home, which is about the first time in a couple of weeks that I've really had a chance to sort of sit down and do some recordings. In previous shows, I talked a little bit about how some scheduling stuff had changed, and I'm still trying to work out kind of some of the details of that to where I can do, again, some of the -the in-the-car recordings. And so sometimes uh, it kind of works out, sometimes it doesn't, uh, just the nature of scheduling and picking up and dropping off and stuff like that. So anyway, let's go ahead and get our contact info posted, and then we'll jump in with the show. If you'd like to contact me, I do have a couple of different ways that you can do that. There is the voicemail, which is area code 206-745-2731. If you would prefer to send in an email or record your own audio, and have me play that for you on the show. The email address is firearmscafe at protonmail.com. All one word, firearmscafe at protonmail.com. Over on the website, which is firearmscafe.com, you'll find buttons for Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. There is also a PayPal donation button if you like the show and would like to support me financially. We do have some feedback on the show today, and I will play that in what I guess I'll call part two of the show, and that's from Lawrence. However, what I wanted to talk about in part one, I guess we'll say, is I was thinking about sort of the mental game. And what I mean by that is, to kind of cut to the chase, I guess, would be mental de-escalation. A lot of times when we do scenarios in our head or even in training, We are doing things where it's gone beyond words and what we're doing is trying to figure out, well, what do we need to do in this physical altercation? Meaning either somebody's got some type of blunt force object, they've got a knife, they've got a gun, they're holding somebody hostage, they're they're threatening you and it is a, a legitimate threat to where you are in imminent danger, that type of thing. And I think For most of us, and this is myself included, when I generally try and go through some of these scenarios, that's kind of what sort of plays out in your head. But we don't really do too much, or at least I don't. I probably shouldn't speak for everybody else. But we don't do too much with what's called verbal de-escalation. So getting that situation that's starting to jump off, getting it from column A, where that person is going to try and physically harm you or maybe harm a member of your family to getting that person uh, again from column A into column B where things are starting to wind down and it's, it's going to dissipate, for lack of a better term. So what got me to thinking about this was I was watching on YouTube and a thing, you know, sometimes it just pops up in suggested videos. And it was in a jiu-jitsu studio And what was happening is they had a guest instructor, a guy who was probably in his, I'm bad with ages sometimes, but probably in his early 60s. 
And what he was talking to the guys about was basically avoidance and de-escalation. And so what he did is he had one of the guys, he said, you know, say to me very aggressively, what are you looking at? So the guy does that and then he responds to him, oh, that's a nice shirt or those are nice shoes. Where'd you get that? I've been looking for something like that. He has another guy say to him again in, in a very harsh manner, you know, are you looking at my girl? And then he responds with, aren't you Diane? Aren't you Diane from accounting at my wife's work? Didn't I meet you at a party? And I'm paraphrasing some of the stuff here, but basically he was, he's again, sort of shifting out of column A into column B. And one of the other examples that I remember, again, this was a couple weeks ago, was he had the guy say like, you know, again, very aggressively, what's your problem? And then he was like, oh, you know, my dad died and I just, yes, you know, the other day and I, I, I just don't feel right and I'm kind of off and all this other stuff. And what was interesting about that about all the examples was, and of course me recounting it to you on an audio podcast, you can't really see, but was his, even in the, we'll call it maybe role playing that he was doing with the guys who they were kind of all seated around him and he was standing up kind of walking around. Even with that, his body language, how he presented himself to the other person was totally non-threatening and gave off the social cues, again, of non-threatening. So that the way that he was talking, the way that he was holding himself, it wasn't like a totally submissive stance. And it's hard to kind of describe it unless you're, unless you're sort of watching it. But it was a very non-threatening stance and, and how he would do it. And especially when he was talking about well, let's let's go over sort of the first one first, where the guy was, you know, hey, what are you looking at? The way that he did it, he had his head kind of cocked to the side a little bit, and he was, you know, and he was like kind of pointing at him, but not in an aggressive way, but ba- literally pointing at like, oh, that's a nice shirt. Where'd you get that type thing? The thing of it when he was like, where, you know, are you are you looking at my girl? When it was that type of thing, he again he kind of had his head cocked to the thing, like he was trying to figure something out, and he had his hand up. And he was pointing at him, but again, not in an aggressive way, but like you would do like when you're going, aren't you the guy that, you know, did such and such? And and then with when the, the, where I really noticed it was with when he had said that his father died because his whole demeanor changed. And that one, he kind of slumped down a little bit. His shoulders sort of rolled forward. His hands came together. They were in front of him. And he, you know, again, he had his head kind of facing down a little bit and, kind of projecting that uh, social cue, I guess, or, or the, um, the visual cues of, you know, I'm going through some, some problems here. And I thought, what I thought was really interesting, and once I thought about it a little bit more, was especially with the, when he said like his, his father had died, you know, oh, my father died yesterday, that type of thing. In our society, in our culture, and in, in most cultures, when we found out when we find out that somebody has suffered a loss like that our cultural response to that person is to oh you know sorry and kind of back off and and give them space it's almost sort of ingrained in us now that's not to say that it would work for everybody but generally that's kind of a showstopper and especially if you're you know at level two or three and you're not at level 10 yet with that person 
and you and you kind of want to get them brought down to level zero where they're just they're going to go away from you and not pay you any attention that type of thing and so again like i said before i in watching that i thought well do i run those kind of scenarios in my head and do i play those things out to where if something like that happens my natural response isn't to puff up or get aggressive but my my sort of natural response will be okay let's go towards de-escalation and i think it was was it uh you know that pops into my head now that i think it was farnham that said well and this will be a bit of a paraphrase but it's like don't go to stupid places with stupid people and do stupid things meaning Try not to put yourself in situations where things could go wrong or where things are more likely to go wrong. And when I look at sort of my own life, if you look at kind of what my wife and I do and the places that we go, even with our kid, generally, we're not going to what I would consider higher risk. I'm not going to say higher risk, but I'm going to say higher risk for our lifestyle places. We generally don't go to bars. We, we don't use drugs and we don't know anybody that use drugs so we're not surrounding ourselves with those type of or in those type of situations where people are going to be altered from their normal their normal self and so they may have uh, heightened responses to what normally they would let slide uh, also generally for us even when we when we go to the movies things like that we're generally going on a Sunday in the morning, the first showing. So a lot of times when we go to certain places or when we go to movies and things like that, we're not going during peak hours and we're not going, you know, the, that first day that it's out. So we're not in huge crowds. Now, sometimes, you know, you're going to be in those things and, and they're going to be unavoidable. Uh, but again, trying to minimize that stuff. So from our standpoint, I think we do a pretty good job of making sure that we're not in those, again, higher risk environments than maybe some other people who you know you're you're going out to the bars uh, four out of the seven nights a week so odds are something might kick off at one of those places and you know years ago and this was long before I was married and all this other stuff me and a buddy of mine in fact it was one of my roommates we used to go to kind of this little dumpy bar and it you know it it was uh the clientele there was generally fine, uh, and it seemed like they were kind of, oh, just your average person. So the, the people that were going there weren't kind of a, a rougher clientele, let's say. So anyway, what happened was, is I think the bar got new management, and they sort of changed how stuff was run there a little bit, and they started doing things to get more business in. So they were having lower drink prices, lower this, lower that. And what we noticed was that this little kind of, again, kind of dumpy bar that generally had regular kind of average, your average Joe's going there, all of a sudden the clientele started to change into a much rougher crowd. And you could see it. And me and uh, the buddy of mine, we went a couple of times. And then the third time we went there, you could tell that there was sort of a fundamental shift. And we were sitting there having a couple of beers and... I looked over at him and then I kind of looked up and he, and it was sort of like we were on that same wavelength. And he said, yeah, it's kind of changed here, huh? And I said, yeah, I don't think we're going to be coming back here anytime soon. And again, it's kind of a, maybe a goofy illustration, but 
It demonstrates that we knew, hey, this isn't sort of the people that we normally hang out with. These aren't the people sort of in our circles. And if we keep coming back here, probably something is going to go wrong. Maybe it's not going to involve us, but maybe we're going to get kind of sucked up in a periphery thing that we don't want to be in. You know, and another thing that also I was, ta- I was talking about the movies earlier. So the theater chain, one of the theater chains out here in Arizona is called Harkins. And this will be a little bit of an aside, but kind of bear with me. I'll, I'll swing it back around here a little bit. But they have changed and remodeled the how they're doing their theater business, I guess. So one of the things that they've done, and it may be due to uh, the popularity of something like Alamo Draft House. I don't know if, the, if you have them in your area. We have them out here. I think they maybe started out in Texas and have kind of branched out. I could be wrong on that, but I thought that's where it was. But anyway, what they do there is they serve alcohol. So, and it's the same at the Harkins Theater. So they had a few theaters where you would go in and now they've got like a, a bar and everything. So they've got beer and wine. I don't think they sell hard liquor. Maybe they do. If, if they do, I don't. I haven't really paid that much attention, but I do know that they have beer and wine. And for the most part, I really haven't seen too many people partake of those. Again, part of that is because of the times that we're going. We're going on a Sunday morning at 9.30 or 10 o'clock in the morning. So most people aren't going to have a beer or something like that. So what's happening is you are introducing you know, alcohol, altered states of people into a place where there's going to be, you know, crowded things. People want a certain experience when they go to the movies. And if they feel that they're not getting that experience, if you're a little liquored up and somebody's talking or texting, is there going to be something that's going to kind of pop off on that? Or if you're sitting next to a guy and you can tell they're kind of liquored up and you want to move, you just, you know, you can get up and move. Now I say that and I bring that up because one of the things that they're doing at certain of these Harkins theaters is when you go in, they have a little uh, touch screen thing that's out there. You'll talk to the ticket taker or the ticket seller, excuse me. And you can see it has a little seating chart. So what they've done is the interior of the theaters, it's still the stadium type thing, but it's like they took out almost every other row and made made room for these big kind of reclining chairs. So you have actually pretty good space. And most of the theaters seat around maybe 100, 150 people tops. And I guess they've done this probably because the attendance has been kind of going down. And so they're trying to get some type of a different experience, that type of thing for the people that go. Well, what this means is, is when you go in, let's say if you show up early and you generally like to sit maybe in the middle of the theater. Or if you're like me, I like to sit on the top row, sort of in the middle, or if I'm not in the middle, on one of the edges. Uh, but generally, my favorite place to sit is in the middle. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Generally, I don't, uh, as far as viewing experience, I kind of like to be more in the middle of the screen type thing. I like to be up higher. And I like to have not I like to have people not behind me. So I always like to sit on that back row if I can, because then if something ever were to pop off, I'm not saying it would be a shooting or, th- or anything like that, but I'm saying if some situation that is abnormal happens, if I am up on the higher row, I can sort of see everything. I can see if somebody's coming up, I can see if somebody's leaving, I can see where the exits are, things like that. Other people may say, well, you'd be better off to sit 
on the edge closest to the exit so that you could kind of pop out and head off that way. Uh, but anyway, that's, that's sort of my rationale for where I like to sit. So with this assigned seating now, you have to go in and you have to pick your seats. And so you can see what seats have been sold and what seats are still available. And it seems like there's a lot of people that like to sit toward the back. In the old days, you would go and you would just go in and find a seat. So if you got there earlier, which is what we were doing, generally you could go and you could find a place to sit. And I could, we could almost always get to, to sit where we wanted to sit. And again, with American culture, people, we, we generally try and give, unless it's super crowded, you'll generally try and give somebody their space a little bit. So normally what would happen is we would go in, you would sit up on that top row kind of in the middle. And if somebody wants to come up and sit up there, they generally will put a seat or two in between you and them. They don't generally sit right by you. Well, with this assigned seat things, what's happening is you get there early. Maybe there's empty seats around you, but by the time the movie starts, they've kind of filled in again because there is less seating available where maybe before they had 200 seats. Now they've got a hundred. So that kind of goes up and wraps around back to if you're going at a later showing in the evening and you've got somebody who is liquored up, you cannot move from your seat because they're assigned. You can't, even if there's a couple of empty seats by you, you can't get up and move over because probably somebody has bought those and they're going to come in and sit by you. And again, this is sort of a small thing, but it's one of those deals where I'm very cognizant of, I'm sort of trapped, in theory, we're going to say, I'm sort of trapped in the seat where I am. Now, if it got bad enough, obviously, we would just get up, I would go and talk to the manager and say, hey, I want a refund. There's these people that I, you know, I, uh, they're being kind of loud or they're being obnoxious and, you know, we'll just come back and see this at a, at a later date. Give me a voucher to come back later. So anyway, again, but that goes into that mental thing of, if somebody were texting, if somebody were kind of talking on their phone, are you just going to ignore it? Are you going to say something to the person? Are you going to say, oh, excuse me, can you do that? Is that a wise thing to do? Is it better just to get up and go? Uh, you know, a lot of times we talk about the best fight you can be in is the one that you avoided altogether. And, and you know, many of you guys know if we're talking about sort of verbal de-escalation here a little bit, that I was... A, uh, a juvenile probation officer. And so a lot of times we would have training that dealt with, and, and before I get into that too much, let me say most of our training was kind of, eh, was, was sort of subpar and was just done. And we had to go through it pretty much to cover the agency's butt in case there was ever a lawsuit. We can say, well, and they would say, well, this individual had the required training and they didn't adhere to it, that type of thing. But anyway, most of our training was subpar However, occasionally, either through dumb luck or, or uh, happenstance, but not through really planned, uh, planned action, we would actually get good training. And some of the training that we had in de-escalation and some of the role-playing that we did was actually pretty good. And in our situations, a lot of time you were delivering bad news to people. You were telling them, oh, you're going to get locked up, or I'm recommending that you get locked up, or I'm recommending that you, know, you have these set of rules or, or these fines imposed on you, that type of thing. And so sometimes people can get upset about that. The interesting thing with the training was that during some of the role-playing stuff, what we found 
or what I found, I should say, or what I observed was if, if, if it was going well in some of the situations, if you did some of that stuff where you kind of pitch your voice down a little bit, you're very calm and you're this, you're that. And it would depend on the situation, but even a lot of times in the role playing, well, let me, I'll give you an example of it. So it's a little bit more concrete. We had uh, in a thing where I was, I was playing the person who was supposed to calm down the other person or try and deescalate a little bit. And the other guy was somebody and he was saying he was very upset because the job wasn't going that well. And he had just found out that his wife was cheating on him. And so he was super angry. And so, and the guy who was doing the, the training was actually pretty good and he was pretty into it. And he comes in and we're supposed to be sitting in an office thing. He comes in and he's ranting and raving and I'm sitting down. And then there's a lot of different things about kind of what's going on. But part of it is you sort of want to, if somebody's in a, that heightened state, you kind of want to get up and be on your feet a little bit. And if you can, maybe put something in between you and the other person or sometimes depending on the situation and how you want to read it. You may want to get further away from that person. In some in some instances, you may want to get closer. In this thing, I ha- I, I uh, moved in and actually got closer to him, and kind of put my hand on him a little bit. And then we were sort of walking around in our in the little room and stuff. And I was talking to him and and uh, had pitched my voice down low and was talking very slow and very calm and, oh, this is what we're going to do. That's terrible. Let's think about this. Let's try and do this. Let's get that done. Let's, let me have so-and-so cover for you. Let's me and you, let's leave. And so doing this thing, the instructor at the end, so that ended at the end, and I'm not trying to blow my own horn here or anything like that, but at the end he was like, oh, I was finding it hard even to stay in character because the techniques that you were using were actually working. You kind of diverted me from what I was thinking about into thinking about something else and trying to get my mind on that. So anyway, a lot of this first segment, a lot of this last 20 minutes or so we've been talking is about that verbal de-escalation. Can you get the situation? Can you get that guy again from column A and put him into column B? So can you get him from aggressive, maybe wanting to hurt you into column B where the situation is diffused and he's just going to, they're going to go on their way, that type of thing. Now, uh, and again, too, sometimes you have to think of, and a lot of times, even in that mental thing, it's, it's a deal of maybe that person who's going to be the aggressor is having a bad day and he misreads some of the stuff that you're doing, but it can be also Maybe you've done something wrong. Maybe you stepped over the line or you said something or did something. Or maybe you you know, were looking at the guy's girl or you were kind of staring at him. Um, it's funny, when I worked, again, back in, in probation and we worked in detention, of course, you deal with a lot of like gang kids and things like that. But And one of the things that, and one of the terms that they used to use, I don't know if they still use it, but they used to call it mad dogging. And that basically would be when you would aggressively stare at somebody else and you kind of make an eye contact and you're looking at them kind of like, you know, like an aggressive dog will lock eyes. And that's where they kind of got that phrase mad dogging. So and that was was some of the things of and maybe you're doing that inadvertently. I mean, to, to do a real mad dog, it's, you know, you're locking eyes with somebody and you're like, you know, what are you looking at? And you're trying to, you know, project a physical thing. So. 
you know, what happens if, if you were doing something like that or if the other person, maybe you're just looking at them and where that other person comes from or the environment they're raised in, even if you're just sort of looking at their way and you look at their way and you don't turn away quickly or just not just like a glance and you look away, maybe that person views that as in their world, it's an actual threat. It's a precursor to stuff's going to pop off. You know, this guy's maybe going to make a move on me for whatever reason or is going to start talking some crap and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, again, keep that stuff in mind. You know, how do you de-escalate? Uh, there's a lot of good stuff online, and I think um, there's I'm sure there's some training with it. You know, but again, uh, one of the things that, that kind of got me to thinking about that was that guy was basically saying, you know, we have uh, in that video. And this is a bit of a paraphrase and kind of a. Um, maybe more of a gist of the video, but basically he was saying, you know, you can come to these gyms and you can train and you can do all this stuff and you can get tuned up physically, but you also need to think about getting your mind tuned up and you need to be able, as good as you are physically, you be, you need to be just as good at de-escalation from a mental and verbal standpoint. So anyway, let's uh, switch topics here real quick. And what I'll do is we have some feedback from Lawrence, and before I play that, what we'll do is I'll give, since it's been a couple of weeks for some of you guys, I'll give a little bit of a recap. Uh, on the last show, I talked about there was a, a threat of a shooting, that somebody was going to come and shoot up the school where my daughter was at, and so I played kind of that message that we got, and so Lawrence is talking about that. He also mentioned some stuff about some social media, so we will go ahead and give that a listen now. All right, uh, Tony, uh, this is Lawrence from North Carolina, you're a Brazilian fan. <laughs> I have some uh, things to say about this episode that I, you know, I checked on Twitter and he, he said he had an episode, so I already listened to it, enjoyed it, and I have a point to make uh, about the school. I think the school did a good job on sharing that information and the responsibility lies on the family to send or not send the kid to school. But my question to the schools is, um, are they prepared in case something happens? Because they were tipped off. You, you know, someone told them that, you know, there was a possibility for someone to bring a gun to school. What about an uh, unannounced attack? Is the school ready? So we all have to be ready. We can't uh, rely on police. Well, there's been cases where, you know, we, we've seen 30 people shot before the police get in. So, and in North Carolina, we have school resource officers. They are great officers. They do, you know, a great job. But considering how these things are happening these days, AR-15s and the way you are, you know, took by surprise, I, I think uh, schools should have a plan in place, uh, not only, you know, waiting for the police in case something happens. So there are some states here in the East Coast, they are developing programs on uh, armed teachers and uh, school employees. Well, I, I work in a Christian ministry, uh, a radio ministry, 
we have uh, former military, including myself, um, armed people who, you know, volunteer to keep the place safe. We got some radios working on, three or four radios. We have cameras, special spots in the building and surrounding the building. So you got to do something. Way before that newspaper in France were, was attacked, we, we had taken uh, our measures So in case something happens. So uh, when it comes to YouTube, oh, my friend, uh, I think they have a bias against gun owners. I, I don't think I'm pretty sure about that. And they they did a lot of stuff, bad stuff to gun owners and uh, against our causes, okay? And they are anti-freedom when it comes to Second Amendment. And, and, and not only that, First Amendment as well, because, you know, I, I should have my right to say or to promote my ideas, don't you think? So, uh, back in January, uh, they uh, demonetized me. And they said I didn't have a thousand subscribers. And there was also a criteria, like if you have, uh, you know, videos have uh, an amount of hits, like if you have a video that, or videos, uh, being, you know, watched thousand times or I don't recall how many times a video should be seen to be considered a, a channel that is, you know, worthy of uh, monetization. So um, what I know, they cut my monetization. And, and But the thing is, I crossed the 1,000 viewers and I have some videos with over 230,000 views. Most of the people don't understand. Uh, you, you can be small in subscribers and have a video watched hundreds of thousands of times. That happened to me. So I've been doing videos since 2006. And uh, well, the thing is, it is clear. Uh, about Patreon, I don't know. Uh, I don't know about Patreon. I know some people are having good results in there. So I try to support uh, the people I, you know, I I like their work and believe uh, I have an amount of money every month to support uh, initiatives. You know, I, I, I really think we should uh, go and help people. Uh, the cause. So that, that that's not much for now. I just wanted to say that I enjoy your uh, podcast very much, and this is no, this is not new, <laughs> not new to you. I've been saying that uh, for a while. Uh, this is not my first audio, and thanks for suffering me, my broken accent. Keep up, my friend, and God bless you. Hey, Lawrence, thanks for the feedback. Really appreciate it. It's great to hear from you. Let's go over a few things that you talked about. It's interesting when when we look at schools, and what we're starting to see is that some schools in certain places are starting to do things where they are having armed responders there. 
these schools, unfortunately, are in the minority. However, it's like I've talked about on previous shows, once word gets out that at that school there can be multiple armed responders who are going to use whatever force necessary to counter anybody that comes into that school to do harm to the either the students or the faculty there, once that becomes common knowledge, then you'll see, at least in those schools that are doing that, you'll see pretty much that a school shooting won't happen there. What they will do is they'll go somewhere else. So the, the point of, too, of that the school did a good job, which I agree, they did a good job in, in getting the word out and stuff like that, but they were tipped off. And the question then becomes, well, what happens if they weren't tipped off and somebody just came in? What is the plan? And most schools, and I'm not... In, in my daughter's school, I know that they have some plans, but most schools in general are pretty much shelter in place until the police get there. And for the most part, depending on how the school is designed and how the school is set up, that can be a viable option. If you have a way to, within your classroom, to shut that door, to lock it, to wedge the door shut, to somehow make it to where it is all but impossible to get in there. That guy is not going to spend all their time trying to blast through a steel door. So, and there are there are ways that you can make it to where those doors just will not open uh, unless unless they're going to be open from the inside. And we've seen those devices that have been marketed to schools. I don't know if a lot of them have those. I think most of them are just depending on the actual lock on the door. And again, depending on are those doors metal, are they kind of hollow core doors, are they old wooden doors? It, it depends, again, on the age of the school, all that type of stuff. And if we talk about businesses, uh, places other than schools, you know, most places don't do anything. They don't have a plan, or if they do, it's it's nebulous and so far up in the air that in all practicality, if something like that were to go down, the plan isn't rehearsed or, or the things that are put into place, most of the people that are there would have no idea what to do. When I worked in probation, we had, there was a, on the west side of town and on the sort of the east side of town, we had two different facilities. You had to go through metal detectors to get into certain parts of it. However, if somebody were to shoot their way through the metal detectors, meaning they were just going to shoot the unarmed security guards that were manning those places, they're going to be able to waltz right in. All the years that I worked there, we never really had a plan for that. Now, if they were going to the court area, there were deputies there and they would, you know, meet, uh, they would meet resistance from the deputies. That's if the deputies weren't killed at first. So, you know, anyway, the, the whole point about some of this stuff that I'm talking about with businesses and things like that, restaurants, things like that, that are kind of out in the world, so to speak, most of them are going to depend on a sign. And that's because most of them believe that the threat would actually come, and they're mistaken in this belief, but they believe that the threat would actually come from a law-abiding person or a person who's a concealed carrier or a person who is concealing their firearm and carrying their firearm within the law. They, they somehow don't ever bring in a criminal mindset into it. And so a lot of them think, well, 
if we can just keep the, and I'll, I'll, these will be my terms that I'll use. So if we can keep the good guy out with a gun, he won't ever lose his temper and shoot up the place because that's what they think is going to happen. And then they believe, well, a bad guy coming in with a gun is going to be so rare that it's almost statistically like we don't even have to prepare for it. And so if we do the numbers, we can kind of put this thing up, put the sign up, and maybe from a liability standpoint, it would kind of cover us, that type of thing. So you had also talked a little bit and mentioned about YouTube and some of that stuff. And of course, I've, you know, like I said, I've talked about that a bunch on past shows. They, of course, have a, a bias and are actively seeking to make it difficult. And this would be in, in the couched in the most positive terms, I guess, that we could think for it for people that for a gun channel to be able to put stuff up there. I think their main thing was to get rid of the any uh, ability to make money at it. And if a lot of those channels, if they can't make money at it, they're not going to do it. For somebody like me or from some or from uh, some other maybe small potatoes guys where it doesn't really cost you anything to have a YouTube account. And if you can play within their guidelines and put some stuff up, put some content up, then I don't really think they care too much about that. Again, on a small channel, if you have less than a thousand subscribers, uh, you're almost a non-entity to them. Uh, now, I did have a, a buddy of mine who had a pretty good YouTube channel. He had worked hard on trying to get the numbers up, and and he had, you know, his his wasn't a large channel by any means. But he went from having, you know, like 16 subscribers up to like five or 600 and he was working at it. And some of his videos were monetized. And then they did that thing where they across the board did the deal of, well, we're not going to monetize you. And for his, what he, the information he got was you had to have a minimum of 1,000 subscribers. And for a video to be deemed worthy enough to be monetized, it had to be seen at least 4,000 times. So again, who knows if they, if, and I think what that means more for them is that they would pay you. They may still stick a commercial on there or something like that, or an ad on there on your videos. If they thought it was popular, you just would never get paid for it. Now I did hear, oh, well, you know, the first amendment thing it's, or the free speech thing again is a, I'm of the view with that, that YouTube, of course, is a private company. They can do what they want. If they don't want to have you be able to put certain content out there, then that's kind of up to them. The unfortunate part is that they are such a large conglomeration and they're such a big dog on the block, so to speak, that they can, in effect, actively go after certain segments of the population and it really won't affect their bottom line. And I guess I, instead of saying certain segments of the population, I should probably say certain people that have philosophical, certain philosophical beliefs, whether that be guns, whether that be uh, being anti-politically correct in your speech and not, not, not going after people, but just saying things like, well, I believe this and I believe that. And you're not doing it in a, in a manner to try and harm anyone or anything like that, but you're just giving out opinion. Or in some, time, in some instances, you're giving out science, scientific fact. And uh, again, the left, the progressives do not want that to be out there. So again, their, their answer to what they would consider 
uh, bad speech is not more good speech, it's to censor people. And we can say on a, if we step back away from just the First Amendment type thing or, or free speech in general, and we look at it as a censorship issue, excuse me, censorship issue, are they doing that? And the answer from my opinion would be yes. And the reason that they're doing that is because they have, you can find tons of other stuff on there that they are letting go. So they are actively picking and choosing who they're going to shut down and censor and things like that. And the reality is most of that stuff never violated their previous guidelines. And uh, again, you know, they can alter their terms of service all the way they want. Ultimately, will it be to their downfall? I don't know. They are so big. And I've talked about this before. Um, it's hard. It's going to be hard for another place to build up. Eventually, other places will. Things like Full Thirty, maybe things like Vimeo. I, you know, I don't know. Vimeo has always kind of struggled, but I do think again something that would be maybe just a gun-centric thing, and then you could have a lot of the big companies could do advertisement stuff like that, uh, and then you know, eventually, I think if it got popular enough, you would have other companies that would come in. And uh, they're going to want to sell and, and get uh, get their products out there in front of people. So anyway, all that stuff uh, to say thanks, Lawrence, so much for sending that in. And I really appreciate it. And I always love to hear from you. I also wanted to say one quick thing uh, with Patreon. I thought I heard. Now, I could be wrong. And if any of you guys out there know this, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought that Patreon was at least partially developed by Cody Wilson. And if that is true, you know, the guy with Defense Distributed, as long as he still has maybe fingers in the pie, so to speak, I doubt that there'd ever be any censorship issues on that. But I I thought that I had heard him say in an interview, maybe with Tom Woods a while back, that he had developed Patreon or had set that up in order to be able to give everybody a platform regardless of what the message was. And again, he comes from a more libertarian standpoint or uh, maybe more of an anarchist standpoint or viewpoint, I guess, of put the platform out there. If it's a hateful message, then the answer to that would be, the answer to bad speech would be good speech and not censorship. So, all right, let me uh, go ahead and kind of bring the show to a close and we'll kind of wrap it up here a little bit. And if we go back to what we were talking about a little bit before, uh, which was kind of that mental game, a lot of that has to do, I think, with figuring out your ego, figuring out what kind of triggers you, for lack of a better word, but being able to keep your ego in check. And I have an example of something that happened to me the other day. So I was driving uh, to go pick my daughter up and there was, uh, the way to get on the freeway was, uh, there, there was an accident on the freeway, so I had shut that down and shut down the, the on-ramp. Now where this particular thing was, you're having to drive kind of through the uh, reservation, so there's not a lot of places to turn around. The traffic, it was just almost in an instant before you sort of realized that it was just jam-packed. You know, everything kind of came to a stop, so... I started to get upset and get angry about that. And I was like, oh, why won't somebody let me over? Eventually we got past the jam, had to go down about another half a mile or almost a mile probably before I could find a place to turn around and was able to do that. And then somebody kind of cut me off, you know, as we were all going back, they kind of 
popped out real quick and I got kind of upset about that. And then I started thinking to myself, what am I getting upset about? What is the big deal? So that guy, he didn't hit my, he didn't hit my truck. He didn't run me off the road. He just sort of turned out a little bit quicker and I had to slow down a little bit. So it was a good life lesson for me in that, okay, well, why are you getting mad about this? What is, what is that going to accomplish? What's it going to do for you? So uh, another thing with that is try and do, if you can do role playing, or even if it's just in your head, how are you going to do that? And, and you'll find that it actually does work. It may seem a little hokey, but you'll find that that stuff really does work and it, it may be able to help you out down the road. Also, you know, it's mostly men that listen to this show, but there are a few women that listen as well. And it is, there are, you know, everybody wants to say, oh, everybody's equal, everybody's the same, but that's not true. Men and women are different and how men and women interact and how how two men are going to interact in a tense situation is going to be very different than how two women interact and if you switch those things up and it's also going to be very different if you have a woman who's an aggressor with a man or if you have a man who's an aggressor with a woman those things uh, are, are going to be resolved a little differently and you need to sort of in your mind game those things out and figure those things out and one last thing about sort of I guess we'll call game theory or doing the scenario stuff is a lot of times the anti-gun people will say things like, well, you're only doing this stuff because you're bloodthirsty and you want to kill people and you want to, you want to find a situation where you're going to be able to pull your gun out and shoot some poor guy down and you know, who doesn't need it, that type of thing. And it's, it's clearly, if you think about it, going through these scenarios in your head, it is, if you're a decent person, you're going through these things so that that is something that does not ever happen to you, so that you do not have to do that. Uh, and it's because it, and I'll include myself in this, it's because that we feel that we have both a ethical and a moral obligation to do everything we can to not have to even... I was going to say take a human life, but I would, I would say it's not even that. You don't even want to cause harm to another person if you can avoid it. So again, you would say that, and uh, uh, what's that? That's a lot of times we say, well, we're shooting to stop the threat. We're shooting, we're not shooting to kill. We're shooting to stop the threat. Uh, and I think it was Jaeger, and I don't know if he got this from somebody else but I heard him say it uh, and I, I have my criticisms of him aplenty but one of the phrases that I had heard him say and I, I thought it made sense was that you're not shooting to take a life you're shooting to save a life and I thought that that was a, a good way and probably the proper way to look at it so all right I will draw the show to a close if you would like to contact me and I would love to hear from you guys. I have the voicemail 206-745-2731. If you would prefer to send in an email and I'll read it out for you on the show or if you want to send in some audio like our friend Lawrence did, I'm more than happy to play it for you on the show and give some comments about it. You can send that to firearmscafe at protonmail.com all one word firearmscafe at protonmail.com all right guys i will talk to you next time